Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rithka Rivera. And I'm Frank Capello. Hey, Frank. How's your week been? It was just Easter. It was. It was just Easter Sunday, the usual day they celebrate Easter. A hot Easter Sunday. Spring has sprung. It almost feels like summer has. But yeah, Easter had a good day, went down to Jersey to see the family. We're a big uh, Easter celebrating uh really you know what roman catholic like? italian family it's really just dinner you know it used to maybe entail an easter egg hunt or something definitely a little bit of a uh, little bit of saying grace a little bit of you know thanking jesus for everything he's done for us but it's always really interesting being around my family at this point in my life and i'm i'm sure a lot of people experience this with their families living in the United States of America, a very capitalist country. But something that I've noticed in the last few years as my political development has shifted more to the left and I've, you know, picked up the mantle of anti-capitalist politics that uh, I notice now how so much of the casual conversation in the way that we talk about uh, our family, our extended family, or just people that we know revolves around people's jobs, their occupations, and how much money they are making. And it's something that is really that I that I ne- I didn't really notice growing up that now is really shining through and there's and it especially comes through when there when there's someone maybe it's like a family friend an acquaintance whatever maybe doesn't have a job that uh performs to the stand this imaginary standard that the rest of my family has and they'll be like, "Well, you know, he's doing that thing and he's not making that much money." But then they'll talk about someone else and they'll be like, "Oh, did you hear he got this job at this big firm and he's making a lot of money." And there's like this built-in reverence that is so wild and bizarre and I actually kind of like threw a wrench into the conversation and I was like, I was like, "How's their mood? Are they happy?" How's that? Like, how how are their relationships? And they were like, "What? What are you talking about?" And I was like, "Never mind." Uh, <laughs> Shut up, Frank. <laughs> Ruining the table conversation. Ruining Easter, yeah, how's, Frank. How's their mental health? Are they content with what they have? Like, no, n- none of that is discussed. What the fuck, are you talking about, Frank? There is a lot of that. There is a lot of cursing at my family's dinner table. But yeah, it's just something that I've noticed in the last few years in, in, in the things that we prioritize in mm-hmm. this society, which are almost always, you know, income-based, status-based, and don't have a lot to do with, uh, you know, living a, living a life of dignity and respect and all that. I mean, I remember telling my family that I'm working for an independent news outlet, and they were like, okay, what is that? Like they're like they have no like no concept. Uh, they're like, are you making a lot of money? And I was like, that's not. Why is that? that why is that the <laughs> thing that's important? Like, <laughs> so yeah. Have you ever experienced anything like this? And and I mean, you're, you you're know, from, your family is a very lefty family, so it's maybe a weird. Not. It's like a lefty New York, but there's definitely like other things that are like sort of. You're always trying to figure out like what's you know. There's definitely like prestigious things that you want to hit or share, but. No, my dad will always be like, you're working too much. And I'm like, I can't, don't really have a choice. Like, I mean, you know, I like, I kind of have to. Um, but he'll always kind of. But what he gets at is like, I do definitely probably do too much um, to your point. And maybe 
maybe we're going to look at that. Maybe not. I don't know. They'll let, they'll let the listeners know. But that there's stuff, but like some of it's out of like necessity, right? Like you ha- like to be able to do the things we sure. love in this world, you have to have multiple streams of income as an artist and then also just doing a lot. So I think that's what he reflects back. I was no, I was the little capitalist of my family. Like I was like <laughs> I had uh I was thinking about this actually in in like the context of this podcast the other day, but I don't know if you know this about me, Frank, but I had a company, my first company, it was a bath and beauty products company. Um You have told me about this, yes. It was Desireas. We were actually in the first uh one of the first issues of Cosmo Girl. Wow. And yeah. And the New York Times. And we were like, Chase gave us some, like, we were doing the thing. This was before Etsy. This was like, I always had like a little, like, I want to have a company. I want to make, I want to make money. So I like Mm -hmm. went with my friend Aviva. We got, we learned how to make bath salt. They were really cool. Like we made these, we had these like Apple computers and we would make our um, labels really fun. And we would recycle like old glass things and it was really and we would go and like sell them in local stores and we got a lot of press for it we got some things so as we were like getting up there right then we brought in our friends and this is where it gets this is where it gets concerning this is where the exploitation starts absolutely um it's kind of alarming because i definitely have that in me um, so we got them to start like we would have parties, right? They would come over, make the bath salt, like mix all the stuff, help us bottle the thing, like literally parties. And then I mm-hmm. would send them off with product and they would have to go to their <laughs> their families friends and i encouraged knocking on neighbors doors i encouraged said do what you need to do get in those stores knock on the doors Absolutely. and you know what you'll get a cut but i will get wow this was but not you'll, like you'll get the man i'm being yep. i'm being honest i was a little like basis in the making like and i can tell you having having been through my ceo journey like no i was not doing the labor like at that point it was just like <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I was like, take my picture, friends, off you go. But you're going to get a little cut. Like, I'm making I'm making how, jobs here. How old were you? I was in fifth grade. So, like, I want to say t- t- maybe 11, 12. So, like, at 11, 12, like you... preteen. You discovered how to create a multi-level marketing scheme on your own you didn't even need guidance it just it just came to you naturally i was on it and then and then i think and then the company broke up because um and my and you know there was so much involvement from moms and like help like it's never again it's never like just me and my amazing individual idea but we broke up because we switched schools. There was some I just remember there was an Eden's Crush concert involved, which if you don't remember, Eden's Crush was like a one hit single girl band of this time. And we okay. went to see them at like Six Flags. And like there was just some kind of like falling out involved around that. And so <laughs> this money making endeavor. Wow. Got <laughs> and I just remember like separate, <laughs> separating the money and we were like, all right. And that was that. Damn. Yeah. That's so. Wild. Your host is a, like a capitalist from the beginning. No. And then so that was that's weird. Like, I think I maybe that was my like rebellion of like, make money, make money, make money. Like, let's go. Well, I, I think they're kind of 
one and the same that what we're talking about, which is this intrinsic, inherent conditioning in this country, in this society, that that is the most important thing, that making money is the end all be all. And like the more money you make, the better of a person you are, the more free you are, the higher status Mm -hmm. you have. So I think it's so ingrained, people don't even think to question it. Like when my... When my no, yeah, dad, exactly. When my dad and his uncles are talking about like how much these people they know are making, they're not they're not thinking critically about that. They're not they're not they're not they never once for a second stop and say, "Why do I care so much about what this guy makes? Why is this what I am talking about?" And the other reason I want to bring this up is because it ha- can have a really detrimental effect on people. So, you know, you because you take this in whether it's consciously or subconsciously, and you know, if you're not someone who is making a shit ton of money, then maybe you hear. People talking about this, you hear, you you know, you see other people doing business and doing all mm-hmm. these, and you're like, man, I must be a real piece of shit because I am not, I am not creating as much surplus value as these other people, and it's mm-hmm. it's a real trap that I think people can fall into. So I think it's important to to call out. Absolutely, and and like with all the things that we look at in this show, just like you said it exactly, like you don't, it's like the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. You, you're you not even conscious of that we equate being a better human being with, like, how much money you make. Like, that's yeah. a better person. That's just, like, the subtext. That's a better person. That person yeah. is better than <laughs> that's, me. It's a more valuable <laughs> or, person. Or even worse, yeah. like, I guess God loves that person more if you're religious. Maybe there's that version of that. Or, like, I guess the universe, the universe, yep. like, that person just manifested better than me. And I had a, I had some kind of negative thought that, like, fucked me over and i better just think think better and be a better manifester find uh, better ways to make money i'm sorry to all those girls i exploited by the way just for the record that's good that's good that you're making amends for this and if anyone's not aware that this is that i'm i'm light about it because the exploitation was truly like minimal like it was we were we were in operation for like under a year so you were also a child like i think we can (laughs) i think we can go easy on you you know okay just (laughs) This is us airing out the dirty laundry now. The skeletons are out of the closet. Yeah, so, you that's know, when a big... This, so, so when this podcast blows up, you know, the hit piece that comes out on you, actually, Rivka Rivera was a tiny capitalist. We'll be like, we addressed tiny... it. It's good. It's done. Oh, I love that as an autobiography title. Tiny capitalist. Kind of cute. You know what we could do? We could register that with the WGA so that it's yours. And Is that a segue? I think it is. All right. Really briefly before we get into our movie conversation today, uh, the WGA is gearing up for a potential strike. Um, they are, they've been in negotiations with the studios uh, for the last several weeks. They have not made a lot of ground. There is currently a strike authorization vote happening right now, I think. Uh, we're recording this a little bit early, but uh, I think they will have counted the votes uh, yesterday when this podcast comes out, Monday. But it's looking like there's going to be another strike. And they're basically, you know, striking over new contracts because uh, of streaming. Streaming has completely upended the way that uh, television writers' yearly schedules work, uh, how the residuals are structured, and... The WGA said that the median weekly pay for a writer-producer has declined 4% in the last decade, even though there's Mm. more television being made now uh, than ever. So what are your thoughts on this looming strike? 
I mean, I think strikes are always really scary, especially for friends who are currently that I've spoken with that are like currently like, well, I guess, you know, they're making a living in that way. And they're definitely going to strike because they understand the value of it. But it means like, I don't know how long I might have to look at dipping into my savings, looking at other avenues of work. Like, what does that mean? But I think the reason people are all in because in the long term, it's effective and it's important. And ultimately, without striking there's solidarity and an understanding that like the alternative is is worse like it's just going downhill you know like jobs yeah. are going to be gone and for anyone who's not familiar with sort of the effects on streaming not just on the writers but also the actors and most people in production like you just residuals used to be a really huge part of how you could survive as an artist so you might do a big job and even though you're not working for a few months, you're still receiving what they call residual checks, which is like every time something plays, you, well, I guess going back to this model of when I exploited the workers, like the little, the the, the children mm -hmm. going out, like they got a one-time fee, right? So if that's streaming, like they get their one-time cut. But if I keep like selling to those same people that they made connections with, like their friends and family, but I'm like, well, you got a one-time cut, but like, even though you did all the labor and you made that connection and you were part of this creating this product like i'm gonna receive it all and you're not getting any mm -hmm. and streaming that wasn't the case like actors used to get a piece of that pie streaming has cut us actors and writers slowly out 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 now my one concern or thought maybe it's a red flag or just what not this is not at all like i'm totally pro strike or not pro but you know pro like get your what you need to do to get what you want done pro labor Pro-labor, that's the word. The last time there was a big strike, like, wasn't it's like the Kardashians came out of it. You know what I mean? Like, there was this huge bump in reality television. So there's yeah. always that, like, what are they going to do? And, you know, in this intersection with AI, it's just all... Wow, I hadn't even considered that, yeah. Just, like, holding our... We have to just hold our hearts and our craft and our work and each other so dearly because these are just moments where we all, ha like... We all have to be on the right side of this. And to like to to clarify, this strike would only affect scripted series and uh, feature films and, you know, certain like like late night shows, like any, anyone anyone right. that is like a WGA menu that works on scripted material. So reality shows and news shows and things that aren't WGA uh, affiliated programming would continue so that's what you're talking about when you're saying like something like the kardashians totally and i think that's actually a lot around that period of time that's when reality tv had a big boom because mm. they were looking for other things to make money from you know and i don't think anything yeah. ever 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 even ai will replace like really well-made art and the role of the artists and the writers it's just like business don't care they don't care the tiny capitalist doesn't give a fuck <laughs> and the studios and networks are signaling that, you know, it's just it's not a good time right now to do this because like media is in a weird place because of this, you know, looming recession and blah, blah, blah. But never forget that all of these studios and networks are profitable. They all are making a shit ton of profit, billions and billions of dollars. Even the streamers are starting to become profitable. Netflix last year made four point five billion they have the money. The only thing that they actually care about is shareholder value, is the dividends that get paid out to the shareholders, is their stock prices, are these uh, ethereal capitalist bullshit things that only affect very, very, very few people at the top. 
but we've built a lot of our economy around. Totally. So. And what's consistently wild about that is like it, there's not it's not even a care like in a way that would be logical. It's pure greed. Like it's a mm-hmm. care that it keeps getting bigger. It's yes. not even a worry that it's like, you know, it's just like the, it's so unfathomable. It's just a care that it keeps growing. It needs to keep growing. Yeah. And it needs to like literally only to fulfill greed because you're like there is more than enough. For everyone to be okay and your labor to be, you know, there's not an issue of not being enough money. It's just more, 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 more. To be successful, to be a better human being. Full circle back to our original convo. Well, I'm sure we will be touching on this again uh, in the future because this is not resolved. So I'm sure we'll be talking about the WGA uh, in the next few weeks. But we should get to our movie conversation for today about Josie and the Pussycats. But first, we just want to let our audience know that this podcast is brought to you by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation about Josie and the Pussycats with Shannon Amabile. Our guest today is Shannon Amabile. Shannon is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in helping creators and entertainment professionals manage and overcome the unique stressors and anxieties inherent in their industry. On top of all that, she's an avid moviegoer, an unpaid influencer for Diet Coke, and the host of multiple podcasts on movies and psychotherapy. So Shannon, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of both of you guys, so I am so excited to be here. We're a fan of yours, and I'm excited to say I read your bio, and you in fact did come and you are drinking a Diet Coke. I am always drinking Diet Coke. I I know this about Shannon. Uh, A little bit of context for the listeners. Shannon and I went to high school together. We were both from New Jersey. Uh, Shannon's one of my oldest friends and has has been one of my oldest movie-watching friends for years. I feel like that's where our... Uh, friendship really blossomed was in high school, just being like, we're going to go home after school and watch uh, a David Lynch movie. <laughs> I, yeah. Or like, or drop dead gorgeous or like all of these. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But Shannon, you have had a really interesting um, career trajectory because, you know, we both did theater in high school. We both went to theater school. We were in LA at the same time, you know, pursuing, you know, entertainment, acting, performing. Um, but a few years ago, you were like, I'm going to become a therapist because you were some, it was something that you were really interested in. I remember talking to you about that. And now you've been a practicing therapist for a few years now. And like we said in your bio, you specialize in working with artists, with actors, with creators and entertainment professionals, um, which is amazing because, you know, you have that insight from having actually done it. And now you have like the 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 therapy skills to talk to people about it. So te- can you just tell us a little bit about that choice and what 
how you kind of do that and what that means. Sure, sure thing. Yeah, I I just came to realize that I sort of had a passion for people and storytelling in general, which is part of why I wanted to be a performer and work in entertainment as a performer. But when I was training and working among other actors and other creators, I just noticed all of the turmoil and all of the personal internal struggles that we were all facing, but that from the outside was a really hard thing for a lot of people to accept or make any space for or to value in a meaningful way. And I'd always been interested in psychology. So as I continued my pursuit and sort of started to look at the long term of how am I going to marry this thing I love so much with reality as I age? And so I decided to go back to school and try to practice, to try to take the things I always thought were interesting about psychology and try to bring in the theatrical things I'd learned and the character work I'd learned and apply those things to psychological principles. And it's been really fun. I really like it. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I think you were talking in my brain was like, get her number. <laughs> I, think I don't know if that's allowed. It. I think we... Well, I know I have your, but I was like, get her doctor's number. <laughs> yes, I do have a special <laughs> number to make sure. a special doctor's phone. <laughs> is, Shannon, I'm curious, is there something you would say is like that afflicts artists, creators, that's like unique to a creative profession, something that you encounter regularly? Like what, like what are, would you say is like the biggest challenge? Well, I would say I think that there is an overwhelming sense of empathy in creative people, especially creators who then pursue careers in that field. There is just a level of an ability to mirror others and to connect to others in nonverbal communicative ways, which I think is incredibly overwhelming for all people. But as an actor or a writer or storyteller of any kind, when you're trying to put something into your work, uh, I think that's that's where the disconnect can sometimes happen. Hmm. Uh, it's really hard, I think, to value that again. But I think that's the unique thing to creativity is you're allowed to be overwhelmed by a project that will be over that is part of, you know, a robotic industry. You're not really allowed to ever put anything down that you've created artistically because it lives in you forever. Damn. Ooh, All yep. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm All working today. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I was like, let's uh, skip this movie and just do like a call-in. <sighs> Another time. <laughs> to Dr. Shannon. That's amazing. But we will get to the movie because you chose an amazing one for us. And I have to say, just thank you, thank you, thank you, because you had us rewatch Josie and the Pussycats. This is the Josie and the Pussycats from 2001, a satirical musical comedy. It was co-directed by Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan based on the Archie comic series and the Hanna-Barbera cartoon of the same name. This movie stars... Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, Rosario Dawson as the Pussycats, and Alan Cumming, Parker Posey, Gabriel, Unreal, Gabriel Mann, Paolo Costanzo, and Missy Pyle in supporting roles. This film grossed right under $15 million at the U.S. box office, and that was a lot less than its production budget, which was estimated around 22 to $39 million. so it was considered a bomb. It was also critically not... Didn't wow the critics at the time. Unconscionable. So wrong. So Unconscionable, wrong. yep. Yeah. What do they know? Um, a, a short summary if you haven't recently uh, gotten to rewatch this, which you need to immediately, and it's only an hour and 30 minutes, so it's just like so easy. one wow. and a half episodes of TV. Mm -hmm. 
It follows the story of a girl band comprised of Josie, Rachel Lee Cook, Valerie, Rosario Dawson, and Melody, Tara Reed, who are discovered by a talent scout named Wyatt, Alan Cumming. The girls quickly become a sensation, and they're signed by the large record label Mega Records. However, the seemingly perfect life of the band takes a sinister turn when they discover that their music is being used as a tool to deliver subliminal messages to their listeners. Wyatt, along with the record company's CEO, Fiona Parker Posey, and a government agency led by Agent Kelly, have been using the band's music to manipulate the masses into buying more products. And that's it. And that's a fantastic journey. Ah, oh, it's so good. <laughs> a little bit of historical context for when this movie was released. Uh, it was released in April of 2001, just five months before the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which would completely change the entire world as we knew it. Uh, in January, George W. Bush was inaugurated as the 43rd president of the United States. This was also the year of the anthrax attacks. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Remember those? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. For any of our Gen Z listeners, there was this uh, like, you know, three or four month period where people were getting white powder in envelopes and it was not a fun powder. It was potentially anthrax, which I guess killed people. I don't mega poison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was 13. I don't remember being like, I don't get mail yet, so I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm safe. Yeah. Uh, This was also the year of the Enron scandal, which involved the manipulation of energy markets and the eventual bankruptcy of the company, which was a major financial event that shook the global economy in 2001. This was also the year of the first iPod released by Apple. This is also the year that Aaliyah died in a plane crash, shocking fans in the music industry. And then just to stay on theme, this is also the time of NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Destiny's Child, Britney Spears, and the Spice Girls. So, and it feels like it the best and craziest year ever wow so wild so all over the place and so important to note that it is a formative time in my life so i think that's why this movie is so important to me i had so much nostalgia revisiting it and when i was thinking about any movie i'd ever want to talk about and look through a capitalistic lens and try to dissect this movie immediately came to mind both because I feel like it is it does a great job of being a satire, but also because it opens an interesting discussion about, you know, how much of satire gets soaked in inappropriately and what does that mean uh, in the aftermath, I guess. Totally. And you answered our first question, which is what we usually ask our guests, which is why you chose this movie. So thank you for being ahead of the curve on that. Um, but I'll follow up with both of you. Do you think when you saw this movie in in our adolescence, do you think this actually influenced your ideas about consumerism or your relationship with how you view products and brands? 100%, I would say. Um, I think I've always had an interesting relationship to branding and marketing because of my personal history and where I grew up. And I think this movie, I've had several relationships to consumerism through it because as a young person, I could look at it from that vantage point, but then revisiting it now and sort of thinking about what what they're talking about and what they were, I guess, what they're warning about. I have a completely different relationship to it now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it make it challenged me to be aware of my relationship. And I'm really grateful for that. That's awesome. I truly don't recall i think (laughs) i feel like (laughs) i'm more of my when you asked that question i felt like i am one of the consumer teenagers in the movie that i was like (laughs) i want cd give me 
give me more Josie where I can get music. Like, (laughs) I feel like, but I don't know how it sat with me. I think probably because I grew up with parents who were always pushing me to question that kind of stuff. Maybe it was a little like, okay, okay, but I want the sparkly and the, you know, it was like such a, I don't know. That was, there was definitely a part of me that was like, I love everything about this world and this aesthetic. And there's so many like flames on clothes and the glitter, like the amount of body glitter. It was just so amazing that I was like, how could I not want to buy all those things? I want to buy them right now. Exactly. Exactly. It made things look attractive to me that weren't before, but it also made me wonder why and think about why and laugh at why sometimes. That's so interesting. I mean, I guess that makes sense as like as a kid, because I did not see this movie like as a teenager. Shannon, you blew it. You'd never showed me this movie. Um, oh, snap. I really did. You Fudge. really did. Um, you can curse. It's okay. Oh. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I, I prefer fudge unless you're, unless you're trying to sell us fudge, in which case back off. Absolutely not. No way. <laughs> I didn't see this movie until college and someone showed it to me pretty much through the lens that we're looking at. They were being like, well, this is like a, this is a movie about consumerism and advertising. So I, my first viewing was like, oh damn, this is like a highly political movie for what appears to just be like a very broad teen comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so interesting that you say like, uh, this movie makes everything look great because watching it today for this podcast, I was like, this stuff looks disgusting. No. Like, like I, I mean, <laughs> it is just... The SpawnCon, the branded content, and the advertising is so relentless in this movie. I mean, like, if you haven't mm-hmm. rewatched it, like, one of the running one of the running bits is that just like every single setting that these characters are in, whether it's you know the private jet, whether it's a hotel room, whether it's a, you know backstage, there are like ninety thousand brands that are just like all Everywhere. over the place, and they're and they're like eating junk food, and they're just like they're using all of these products, and it just it really made. I don't know. I felt gross. It like it was. And I think maybe also it's like the 2001 ness of it. Like it's so shiny, so colorful, like so Mm. bright. It Mm -hmm. just like made me feel really. Yeah. Just like grossed out, (laughs) disconcerted. And I was like, I never want to use any of these products anymore. Oh, man. I was like, do I dress up for this podcast? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yes, yes. Can't believe that was your reaction. I was like, how low can my pants go now, actually? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've had both of those reactions to it. I think that's why I like it so much, because it can so effectively tell both of those stories and be read in both of those ways. And I kind of like that that is a part of it because i think that's that's what capitalism is doing it's slowly making you sick without you realizing it by you know showing you shiny things and trying to hijack your adhd yeah it's so i mean it's so brilliant it was so fun to rewatch understanding all of the satire and not maybe being swept away by all the shiny objects but the fact that this is absolutely serving as a commentary about the power of advertising and its ability to manipulate desires and also that this satire is so perfect but I'm also hesitant to call it really satire because I think what comes to mind is you're like but aren't you also giving all of these companies like Target and like I left being like Target Evian like you're satirizing it but you're using the real products and and I looked it up they were they didn't get paid for product placement but you did the companies did read the script and say yes you can use our 
And they provided all of the stuff. So like if they wanted you to have people carrying the Puma bags or wearing the shirts or drinking anything, that was all provided by the brand. So they Absolutely. gave them whatever they could to get them to use. But yeah, they, they didn't have to pay for those for like their set design. And I know Gap turned them down. Gap didn't want to be associated. Too bad, Gap. Yeah. Uh, but I did think about, I was like, what would the effect of it been if it was something adjacent to, but not exactly that? Because I do think I, I now I can look at it from that lens and like, oh, that's so interesting. I'm gravitating towards it. But again, as a youth, I don't know that I gave a really cared <laughs> like or had that ability to not be seduced in that way that the film was putting it forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I feel like that's what you're pointing out with like being saturated. That like if mm -hmm. you get saturated, then you can't really see the joke anymore. Your like system is overwhelmed and now these things are kind of seeping in no matter what. Like you leave the movie thinking target because they made sure to saturate your brain with it as long as they had it. Yes. And also, yes, and they're making <laughs> this point about the world. Like what's interesting is they're highlighting this thing, but you leave you go outside of your house and you're like, it's not any, it's not different, which I love that part of it, that it's highlighting this is the world we live in. But sometimes when it's in a satirical world, you feel like, oh, that's, that's a, that's a bigger than life world when really it's not that, it's not any different than everywhere you go here. <laughs> mm -hmm. There is an ad attached to it. It's wild. And I actually, in 2018, I was lucky to go to Cuba with my best friend. I went on a trip to Cuba and it was so remarkable because in Cuba, there are no advertisements at the time. I haven't been there now, but there are no advertisements anywhere. There's wow. posters for, you know, Fidel, but there's no advertisements anywhere. I wasn't even thinking about that consciously. And it wasn't until a few days into the trip. And we also had limited access to Internet. So I was just not there was just like I was out in an environment where I was not it's not even you don't even need subliminal messaging. It's just you go through your life and you start to tune out the constant advertising. So it inherently becomes subliminal. But like mm -hmm. I had the most peaceful experience of my life. I've never slept so well. I've never felt so good. And it's because I had this, which is so wild to like really get to experience what it's like to not have the message that you need something. You're not good enough without a thing. You're constantly missing a thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the world we live in. It's, it, they don't have to be subliminal because they know that if we're overwhelmed by it enough, we're going to tune it out and it just will become subliminal messaging. Yeah, it's interesting because it makes me think a lot about the idea of brand loyalty, which I hear a lot in advertising. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was interesting thinking about that here, too, because I... I have like OG brand loyalties, like things like Diet Coke, as we know. <laughs> um, but like there are a couple of other random brands that I don't know why or where I got the loyalty. But I remember directly feeling very like threatened and checked uh, when I watched <laughs> this movie because I prefer Adidas over Puma. So I was like, get this Puma stuff out of here. Like this is taking <laughs> oh, me out wow. of the story because I don't want this brand. I was a Puma girl for sure. But like I feel like Puma was so of the time too. So it's so interesting because I'm sort of like, do I have any brand loyalty or am I just like loyal to the one that like you're saying I had to tune out eventually. And so it's the one that got in there. And the message is if you don't have brand loyalty, then you're an unloyal piece of shit. Yeah, you're not a part of this. You live under the rock. Rivka, real fast to touch on what you were saying about how you know it is this satire or does 
having this many brands and this many products in a movie like this, does it actually do the thing that it is satirizing? Does it make you want a Coca-Cola? Mm -hmm. Does it make you want McDonald's instead of being like, actually, I shouldn't want those things? Um, and I think that's just part of the risk of some satire, which is like, and it depends on the kind of story you're telling. I mean, the but like the comp that came to my mind is sort of like The Wolf of Wall Street, you know, which is a movie I'm sure we'll get to on this podcast. But like, you know, that's a that is a movie about the excesses of finance capitalism, the disgusting, depraved lives that those guys led, like all of the criminal shit that they did, how terrible they were. But it's like a it's like a super fun movie. And there are dudes that walk out of that movie that are like, those are my guys like that's who I want to be, you know, so it's I think satire can at times run that risk. Yeah, Frank, you said Wolf of Wall Street and I my brain was like money. I want money. I smiled. I'll do whatever. You want. I had yeah. an internal smile. I was like, oh, I love the color in that movie. Let's go like right away. You know, yeah. oh, don't get me wrong. That movie slaps like when Leo's on Quaaludes and can't get out of the car. That's one like, come on. <laughs> but the the thing that it's a good point though but the thing that Josie I think does so smartly that like kind of really buttons the the satire is it brings the US intelligence state into this oh. so mm -hmm. <laughs> so the whole the whole premise is that you know Mega Records which has just signed Josie and the Pussycats is using subliminal messaging and they're basically in collaboration with the US intelligence state to you know just Drive consumerism. Drive drive consumerism, uh, get all this money out of kids, and uh, just control the way that people think. And I'm actually going to play a quick clip because they do this. They have this informational video uh, in the middle where they explain all this as told by actor Eugene Levy. Epic. <laughs> I'm here to talk about subliminal messages in rock and roll music, or as it's simply known in some cultures, rock music. <laughs> You see, for years, the government has been wisely coercing teenagers to buy products they normally wouldn't want just to get their money. Fact, kids don't have bills to pay. Fact, they don't pay taxes, but they do babysit and hold minimum wage jobs that earn them wads of cash as thick as, well, my body of work. But these kids today are dumb. They're not gonna buy just anything. That's why the government has been finding small subliminal advertising suggestions in today's rock music. The results? We can now get these kids to buy just about anything. We can have them chasing a new trend every week. And that is good for the economy. And what's good for the economy is good for the country. <laughs> so God bless the United States of America, the most ass-kicking country in the world. Damn. Epic. What's good for the economy is good for the country. That is... That I'm I'm so glad that a bunch of teenagers got that messaging, even if they even if some of them missed it. But yeah, that's high level satire. Yeah, I think I, I I like that so much because there is a true acknowledgement that like kids today are not stupid. They do think so. We actually have to do this because we we cannot convince them otherwise. Like they're free thinkers, and it's up to us to intercept that free thinking and drive it towards consumerism instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like that's what the teenage that's what the culture is always after teenagers to do one way or another yeah and it's followed up by then fiona plays them they have this big plan for this big concert and they have these headphones that fiona puts on and so you hear the messages underneath that she's playing for the representative of the army 
which is conform, free will is overrated, jump on the bandwagon. And it's Mr. Movie Phone doing all the subliminal message. I mean, this is such good writing. Like it's so good. Great, brilliant writing. Yeah. There's no there's no such place as Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that was that actually is brilliant. That was a brilliant line for teens because I feel like if you tell them that they're being told, there's it's just like something about Area 51. At least for me, as like a through line in my life, would be like, don't tell me that. I'm gonna find the aliens. You know, they're lying to us. It's a practical one. I feel like they can. It's so easy for for people to be lied to when they can't hold on to something practical in a meaningful way. And you can't just like truly hide a piece of property. Like it's impossible to act <laughs> as though that does not exist. And yet I think there is this desire to live in a surface kind of reality. And I think that's also what I love about this movie is it's like reminding me that there are a lot of people who prefer to live in a surface reality. And this is what that reality looks like. Yeah. And if you don't, um, Alan Cumming is going to call the government or the the record label. That was one of my favorite bits was when he meets the Nir- <laughs> the Nirvana girl at the Mm-hmm. <laughs> at, yes. the, at the CD store, and she's like, and he's like, "Wow, you're a real free thinker. Free thinker. You don't go with the flow. Let's talk about it." And then he's into his microphone. He's like, "Smells like Teen Spirit." And then oh they just God. and they just grab so her and good. bag her. Uh, such good satire and such good like straight up comedy. Like the way that this is shot. Like so many incredible bits. They just do so many fun things in the way that they like frame the camera and the the way they have people talk to each other. Like. When Josie's talking to them in the spinning car and it just like they just have yes. to they just have to keep turning their heads so they can like actually make eye contact. It's just it's really, really well done. It's oh, really man. brilliant. And I and I hope I, I've read different things on what the actors thought, but like I wonder how many of them understood like what a cult classic they were creating at the time. For sure. I think about that a lot. I just think about, you know, now as time goes on and we get farther away from movies that are, you know, in the recent past to us and sort of what that means and what a cult classic actually is when you think about how it needs to penetrate the culture, not just as a good movie, but like we're talking about, it has to it has to be somehow predictive of a reality that exists and I'm not sure how, but I feel like this movie really nailed exactly what you were saying, which is like, if if I go outside, I exist in this universe, whether or not I choose to buy in. And you know what it does also at the end of the movie that potentially means like, I, I do think it winks enough at itself as a satire where it might even be self-aware that it's like, we could even be manipulating you with this satire itself. But then it, it constantly winks at the camera and it ends with that same army General, sorry, I don't know. I don't know army terms, sorry. But (laughs) (laughs) saying, you know, we were going to shut this program down after the concert anyways because we found out that subliminal messages work much better in movies. And then it flashes... Yeah, join the army or something. Join the army. It says join the army, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it says join the army. So that moment, I mean, that moment alone is like, okay, brilliant, you got me. Like, you are, this is way ahead of its time. And yeah. And then it got me thinking about the history of subliminal. Like, when has... Because you've heard of it. But again, that's where I almost feel like the myth of subliminal messages helps distort the idea that you're like, it is it is happening all the time and you don't have to call it subliminal. It's just manipulation. I mean, it's kind of also like propaganda, I feel like, at the same time, the way that yeah. like propaganda is intended to sway you, not give you choice, except mm-hmm. with capitalism, it's the appearance of a choice. And mm. it's kind of 
it's just a strange way to think about it because they actually want us to worship the brand as if we would worship the person they'd be giving propaganda around. So they just sort of like changed the deity like to the brand. And I guess that's why I think so much about brand loyalty as like a really weird kind of cult that exists that we're all, we all subscribe to and are like, you're cooler for joining. To connect both of those things, first of all, in terms of like subliminal message and the US intelligence state, like a lot of that stuff is just publicly known and not specifically with the music industry, although maybe maybe the Pentagon has a relationship with uh, like Atlantic Records, but more so with the <laughs> film and television industry, mm -hmm. because like that is very well known that if, you know, a movie or a TV show wants the express approval of the U.S. military and the U.S. military apparatus, they go to the Pentagon who has like an the Pentagon has an entertainment office. They have people whose jobs who work for the government is to. Uh, talk to producers in Hollywood and be like, all right, what's your script about the army? How can we shape it? What can we, no, you can't say that. You can say this. And if you do say some nice things, maybe we'll give you some, uh, some planes to use. To or play like, with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's just like right out in front. That isn't like, there's nothing subliminal about that, that like the Pentagon gets the chance to like do line edits, literal line edits on movie and TV scripts. And then in terms of just like, the way that like brands and advertisers and marketers, you know, do all this stuff and think about this stuff, you know, I I, I think it's really easy for people to get kind of lost down these conspiracy theory, uh, you know, roads where they're like, they're like, oh, there's like these this shadowy cabal of people pulling the strings and making <laughs> all of these decisions when in reality, a lot of that stuff, like the Pentagon is, it's like, no, it's just, that's just what their jobs are. Their jobs are to be like, how do we keep as much of your attention as possible? How do we grab your attention away from other things? How do we use psychology and neurology? Like all of literally all of the science that we ha and technology that we have at our disposal to just fucking drill you over and over, like all day so that after months, however, you're just like, yeah, I guess I do want a Coke. I guess I do want a Coke. Yeah. And and I guess that's one of those things, too, where there's kind of like a, um, a whiplash or something associated with that, too. I feel like now that things can change so quick, quickly and rapidly. And it feels like there are some brands in the movie that I recognize. And there are some brands that I'm like, oh, that brand straight up disappeared. Ooh. Mm. It's it's kind of interesting to remember or to think about brands that they pushed so heavily but had to abandon because like at the end of the day, it's really all about the money. It's not about any of the stuff they want to convince us it is. I mean, as we're having this conversation, I'm just like, this is this is it, right? Like this is the stuff that makes it so hard to imagine a world outside of capitalism. And I feel it like as we're talking because it is so ingrained from the moment we come to this earth at least in this culture, how do you exist without these things that you must buy to help you be better and be strong, you know, and, and, and then we have to actively work to replace that ideology. I remember in my recovery from an eating disorder, that became like something I actively had to seek out was, was become cognizant of those trigger images that are fucking everywhere. Yes. And just, you know, one of the things I, I think I am, it's harder, uh, you know, I, there's all these issues with, especially for young teens and mental health on Instagram and any of the social media. But one thing I like is that you can choose to not follow something. You can make choices if you have awareness, if you have people around you who can help you do that. 
Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's an individual pursuit. You have to be in a community that has that awareness. But like, I I couldn't do that at at the young age with magazines, right? You were just like, oh, that's telling me that I need to lose weight. That's telling me every fucking place. I mean, now they have these goddamn Ozempic, not Ozempic, but like the fucking, literally, if anyone who is listening doesn't know about Ozempic, it's a medication that's made for diabetes, but women are now not just women, people are um, taking because it helps you basically makes food taste like shit and helps you not want to eat. So it's just... Jesus. Yeah, it's like a prescription form of uh, fat shaming now where there's... Yeah, and I have my whole... Exactly. I have like a whole thing I can go on another time about my thoughts on how it's discussed in media, but like I absolutely think it perpetuates eating disorders. I think anytime it's talked about and and in align with this, like there should be a place where people can go to to seek help if that's in the conversation. But there's a giant ad in I think it was not West Forth, some like one of those train stations. Literally, it's a hand taking a needle, putting it into their leg for weight loss. Get it? They're like, get it for weight, and also this is taking it off the market for people who actually need this medication for diabetes. Yeah, there's like shortages. There are legitimate shortages. And that's problematic too, is that even things that should function as supportive and helpful in our culture are ultimately still just a business. And there are particularly certain mental health concerns that people prefer to keep a business rather than look for long-term solution-oriented treatment models. They would prefer to keep you I think, in addicted spaces so they can have you be addicted to the brand they want. If if you know how to think too much for yourself, you might choose something they don't want. And I feel like that's what you're talking about is that like with awareness, you can make choices, but that does not mean there are not people actively vying for your choice and playing dirty. Mm. Oh, yeah. I saw a, a Subway ad a few weeks ago that was for online gambling, like an app that you- Oh, my God. Which is fucking absurd that that is legal. Uh, it's for an app on your phone, online gambling, and they had like a fake testimonial quote. And it was like, I made so much money in my spare time, something, something. And then the fake username was like thrift mom or like something mom where they were clearly targeting like probably lower income mothers who need extra money, um, who ride the subway because that's one of the cheapest uh, forms of public transit in the city. And it's specifically going after them. It's like, hey, hey, mom, hey, mom with a few kids who probably doesn't have the extra disposable income to fucking gamble with. Like, it's really, really upset me in the moment. Yeah, truly despicable because you you it's now impossible to seem like uh, you don't have the awareness like that. The uh, that the advertising industry does not have this awareness and like, oh, my gosh, we didn't even realize we were targeting (laughs) this market, you know, like that. That is now so glaringly an impossibility that I think that's why Mm -hmm. it's kind of disgusting, uh, because I definitely see a lot of advertisements in the central time zone and in the Texas space uh, that as a coastal elite, I have not experienced. And it's a very strange thing to think about, because I don't know when when awareness and choice begin in a meaningful way when when other people's choice is so penetrative in one way or another. Especially when you're targeting people in a specific socioeconomic group. Desperate kind of space. Desperate, yeah, de- like desperation. Like that that does stuff to people. That changes people's psychology. It's always targeted too. Like mm-hmm. you use just even the language. Like I'm just, you know, that you're like a target. 
Yes. Yeah. Like your target audience. Ads. Who's your target audience? You're like, so that you can shoot them? Like, it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, actually. Right. I think that's exactly it is it's a strange thing to try to relate to because in my work, I have to deal with people who need to treat their art or themselves sometimes as a brand. You you have to function that way in entertainment. And that is a really alienating kind of thing, because even though I think the community episode about the man subway is like a great explanation uh, in many ways, it, it is so much harder, I think, to to have an identity and to be able to have that identity still belong to you when you're only course forward is to to make it for sale in one way or another. That is, yeah, that's, I, I wanted to, I was like, I'll save it for the, for our call, Dr. Shannon. I was like, <laughs> and we will need deeper thoughts on that. But let's, or before we go to our rewards, I would love to make sure we touch on this plot point, which is the connection between TRL and MTV in oh this my God. <laughs> bigger conspiracy. Yes. So uh, if you haven't rewatched this movie, one of the things going on is that you know, there. I think at, when Fiona is giving this big talk to, it's like not only is she talking to the army, she has like a global group of diplomats there who she's like, "This is this is how we do it." Mm-hmm. Like, so this is a global level scheme, and everyone's like, "Wow, this is this is really wonderful." Um, and someone asks, "Well, what do you do if like like don't the artists figure something out? Like, how dumb? Like, they can't all be that dumb." They're like, oh, well, we kill them off and they pull up TRL. Wait, what is it specifically? It's behind the music. They're like, we have highly produced television shows to explain what happens. That's right. It's a lot like the Manchurian Candidate. It's a lot like that. Totally. And also when you brought up when you were saying the facts, Frank, that like this is when it just was like, oh, right. It it was at the height of MTV. And just that I remember Aaliyah dying. It's just a weird, but where you're like Aaliyah dying in this plane crash. And then they're talking about how like that's how they're like, oh, they died in this mysterious plane crash. When at the top of the film, we know that they're killing off any artist who like figures out that their like music is being spiked with subliminal messaging. And we didn't even mention that the first band that is that we open with that is our our entry into this world of uh, evil, manipulative record label people is a boy band called DuJour. Uh, <laughs> which so good. is French for of the day. Uh, very clearly just like these are flash in the pans. These are one and dones. These are like one hit wonders. Um, God damn, such good writing. Also the original music, you know, I can't oh, right now. I, yeah. I'm missing who is the original artist, but it's, it's someone that we know. Like when you look it up, the woman who created it is a lead singer from a band. We know, I just, I can't think. And the music is so good. I have been singing the music from this movie oh, for yeah. 20 years. It took and six whole hours and five long days, babe. Yes. Let's go. Just pretend to be nice. Uh, that's all I want. Pretend to be nice. Uh, backdoor lover. Oh, my God. So such such a talented way to try to talk about something that's really hard to swallow. And I think that's why I do the work that I do that like I... I don't like the reality we live in either, which is why I want to be with the creative people, because they know how to solve problems and creativity is a survival skill and they're the best one at it. So mm. Ooh, uh, I'm about sound that. Sound bite. <laughs> <laughs> Ads. <laughs> Speaking of the creators of this film specifically, because as we've talked about, like this has become a cult classic and people have discovered its politics, you know, way long after the fact. So 
a few years ago was his 20 year anniversary and the writers, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont did an interview. Um, and someone asked them explicitly, like, were you seeking to write an anti-capitalist film? And they were like, no, that's not what we were doing. Um, we understand like the consumerism part for sure. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll just quote them specifically here. Harry said, you know, we definitely talked about consumerism, but it definitely felt more to us that it was non-groupthink. I mean, she says at the end of the movie, you know, think for yourselves. So for them, it was, they were writing a movie about conformity and non-conforming and, and like they said, groupthink, but used the consumerism as sort of like their plot device, um, mm -hmm. which was brilliant because it, it like it all and like thematically it all ties together really perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most dangerous kinds of group think, right? Like mm -hmm. it's the kind that gets people to galvanize behind something that they don't really believe in and gets people to beat themselves up silently when no one's watching so that they'll be easy to control. It's interesting that they that makes sense, but it it is such an I think it's such an anti-capitalist movie. And even in the 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 way that Josie and Melody and Veronica like do their music together before before Fiona gets her hands on them, but they're like totally like we are the pussycats. Like we all are like this collective of musicians. We all write the songs. There's no leader, you know. Mm -hmm. And then of course they they that can't be because under this consumeristic world, like they're trying to sell Josie and push the other two out and mm -hmm. individualism. There you go. And then eventually they push back on that. Well, I don't know that they changed their name. I that wasn't clear. I, I think they're, they're like so clear on the <laughs> second album and what's going to be happening with that. We what's don't really be happening with that. get a lot of info. Um, I did want to ask very importantly, both of you, what your first concerts ever were. Britney Spears, baby. Wow. All yes. the way. Wow. All the way. Little lady on the grass at PNC Bank Art Center. Oh, the Damn. best. You know what? Mine was also at PNC Bank Art Center, and it was Spice Girls. Oh. And there was a particular moment in this film that hit me very deeply because I think it was in the montage where they were like, "All the, these are all the what happens if you find out about us, and they show the Spice Girls and they like pulled out both of them. And I have such a distinct memory because we I had gotten these tickets. I was so excited to go with my best friend, Stephanie. We'd been planning it. And then that was when Ginger Spice, Jerry Hollowell, uh, had left the group right before. And I just remember going and the, mer the merchandise that they sold was just like all I could, like you only had the option to buy a shirt of all of them and a big X over Jerry. <laughs> wow. 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 What about you, Frank? Well, mine sucks compared to those. Uh, mine was the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. In <laughs> wow. Yeah. I didn't even really want to go. I went with a friend because he wanted to go. That's it. What? I, I had just a. I just There's had. No. I just had an okay time. It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting to think of the merch at concerts, though, because like every time I go to a concert for Britney, I obviously have to buy memorabilia. So I am being loyal to the brand that is Britney, and we have all seen what happened to that brand when the public turned on it. So mm. it is kind of funny to think like a T-shirt at a Britney Spears concert in. Okay, I would have went in like ninety maybe 98 or nine mm. was like $50 then. Damn. So I'm wondering like, what's up with the Mighty Boston's merch? <laughs> how how much was a t-shirt at that spot? Uh, I don't know. I didn't buy anything. I honestly oh. kind of, <laughs> honestly just kind of zoned out. Was there, were you an NSYNC or a Backstreet Boys? If you had to pick one. 
You can't pick both. I wasn't really either. We'll pick one, Frank. And sink. Hands down. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You got yourselves a backstreet boys girl here. So the backstreet boys definitely remind me the most of du jour. So I feel like mm. that <laughs> that feels right to me there. And I I do feel like it's like in sync, like leaves with the most votes or something. But I think in the time BSB was like the more popular of the bands. I feel like NSYNC was seen as a follow-up, but Jay Tims just figured out a way yeah. to make it seem like they were the better one. And that's what's great about art is you can't actually change it. You could try to look at it differently, but you can't change it. My last thought on all this is, because I think this is important, that like it's still okay to really enjoy these products. It's okay, like, you know what I mean? It's okay to really love NSYNC or Britney, even though they are immensely commercialized and targeted towards teenagers and all, all of the things that this film lays out. And I mean, even just like products like Shannon, your diet Coke, there are things that I have in my life that I enjoy. And that's, I, that's okay. We're not saying that like you cannot enjoy a product because it has been marketed to you or because you have purchased it in a capitalist market, but it's more so to just realize how these advertisements how they target people's insecurities specifically because that's yeah. kind of that's kind of like at the heart of this and and I, I think a thing that this movie does really well because there's a few moments you know when they're like in the party and their inner monologue is going and they're and they're like Josie and Val are like oh, everybody's thinking this about me and then <laughs> you know and then at the end you find out that uh Wyatt and Fiona are just a couple of like weirdos who are just like want to be accepted and think have everyone think that they're cool so like it's a. I think it is, this movie does a really good job at reminding you that, like, you there know, there are humans in the background. Yeah, and that advertisement based on insecurity and and exploiting that insecurity that is problematic. But like, you know, otherwise enjoying something is not inherently bad on its own. Mm. No, I think I prioritize in my work one's relationship to the things that unchecked can be problematic, and I think that's where I stand on brands. Is that just like you were saying, as long as you choose, as long as you're paying attention to the choices you make, then your relationship should be safe. It's when you don't pay attention that your relationship maybe gets to a place where you're now feeling insecure because of this marketing because you don't have any boundaries up between you and it. Mm. But oh. this movie challenges you to do that. And I think that's that's what's nice about having accessed it pretty early. Uh, I didn't have to feel like I was a contrarian. I could feel like a free thinker. I love that, Shannon, about things that not being checked or that we're not paying attention to and this idea of you can once you become aware you get to make a choice I do think however that's part of the reason that some people are like la, 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 because there is this feeling of like because I do think while I'm like we're not saying don't enjoy things I truly think when you learn certain things the consequence is you are may not be able to enjoy that thing when you put together the real real um, effects that that making that product has and your participation in mm. that by being a consumer of it is very real we can't do that with everything but I do think that like it's not easy it's really hard but like I don't feel good about a lot of the things I use I don't know what to do about that like <laughs> I don't know what to do about it and there's moments where it comes in and it's overwhelming I'm like push it away push it away but like if there was and this is why movements and unity is so important because I alone can't be like, we need a better way to make these iPhones. Like, I alone can't be like, it's going to do something for me to just isolate myself and not be a part of the world and lose work and whatever that would be. But I also can sit with the paradox that, like, 
me shutting out the, the reality that people are dying making these products. And I am a part of that. Like we do have to own that we're a part of that. And that discomfort, I think, can be important and motivating. So important. So, so important. I talk about relationship to discomfort pretty much all the time, because when you exist in a world where your boundaries have to be flexible, depending on the work you're doing, more than likely, it's easy for your boundaries to be flexible. So you have to be careful. You have Damn. to be mindful of those things. And I think that's why I stick with the creative people, because they are collaborative. So their problem solving is inherently safe. It's only when you like get a narcissist who comes in and is like, oh, everyone was happy and safe here. More for me. You know, <laughs> it's only when those problematic forces come that like the collaboration can turn into something vile. And I think that's what's interesting about advertising is it's a mm. kind of creative person, but it isn't an artist necessarily. Damn. Ooh, Oof. damn. Okay. <laughs> I, I have thought a lot about our conversation, you guys. <laughs> wow. On that note, we do have some awards, which are a form of advertisement, but here we go. Our first award is a point with a view. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. I think, honestly, I am going to go with Melody Tara Reed's character uh. because she's not quite participating in the consumerism at all. Mm. And it makes me sad because they frame that from a place of her being too stupid to participate. But I don't actually think that's what it is because sort of in the end, when she's had to be in the background all of this time, she's not so affected. And then she's just ready to move on when they return. It's sort of like the other two get sucked in and she doesn't. And I love that for Tara Reid's journey. That was going to be my choice as well, uh, Melody. Yeah, she's completely unbothered by all of the advertisements and is just content. You could say it's obliviousness, but it 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 Tara Reid plays it like contentness, which I think it makes a little bit of a difference. Yeah. And I think is like a, a thing I appreciate in retrospect, because I feel like Tara Reid is another person who, as an actor, faced a kind of personal branding that was really troublesome. And I just like that in this film, that's not something that she has to do. So I can kind of imagine her happy rather than how like the culture has me imagine her like falling apart pretty regularly. That's so beautiful. Yes. I thought this was Tara Reid's movie. I said, oh, my God, comedy gold. I think she's so brilliant in this. The scene in the shower where she's singing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And she's singing this to herself and she claps her hands and she drops the loofah, picks it up, sings again. Perfect. It's just so good. So I, I'm with you. McDonald's loofah, which yes. I guess they make those. I guess so, right? All right. So our second award is called Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. Mm, this is hard. This one was hard for me because I I struggle to be mad at people who are even bad sometimes. So I think, honestly, <laughs> it ends up for me being Alan Cummings character Wyatt. Oh. Uh, only because I think there is a, a low-key misogyny in there that really bothers mm. me, too. Like, um, the way he treats the men of du jour, he really babies them and infantilizes them. And he kind of does the same to Josie, which I feel like he is also able to do, uh, I guess, just in a way where, like, he sees them as this thing. And that that's a passive thing he does. So it sticks with mm. me because I feel like the passive stuff is the most insidious stuff. That's a good one. Yeah, he's definitely the most, like, active actor. Like, not actor. But, like, he's the most active character in this in, in manipulating everybody. Um, 
my answer, I'm going with Agent Kelly, the dude from the the FBI or the CIA, whatever, just because he's the guy from the FBI or the CIA. And he's the one that's pulling all the strings. He's definitely committed some war crimes. And he's ready to uh, sacrifice Fiona and Wyatt. He doesn't give a shit about them because they're going to go to movies now. So, yeah, definitely mm-hmm. Agent Kelly. Yeah, I was going to go with Agent Kelly as well. Although, for some reason, there's a voice in my head saying, Eugene Levy, like, <laughs> <laughs> just throw him out there. <laughs> Oh, what a great cameo he makes in this, too. I mean, he is really rude to that PA who brings him the coffee. I asked for a cappuccino. Yeah, you're just like... He could be a terror on set. Oh, what about Carson Daly? Ooh. Ooh, that's that's a good Carson one. Carson Daly sucks. And I wonder how hard like that. I was like, does Carson Daly suck? I think as a kid that probably I was like, Carson Daly sucks because of Josie and the Pussycats. I would say Saturday Night Live also thinks Carson Daly sucks in the early 2000s because there's a lot of Jimmy Fallon being like, it's me, Carson Daly, a total tool. And so he definitely wasn't getting he wasn't getting a lot of love either at the time. But yeah, it was interesting him being here because I think him and Tara Reid were dating at the time, IRL. Oh, wow. Oh. So it's kind of interesting to think about. But I mean, she basically dismantles him. Like, here is another example of why she's the best one in this entire movie. He is a contract killer, essentially. (laughs) And her sweetness (laughs) melts his heart. And then, you know, they're able to kill him and escape. So everyone wins, I feel like. That's true. Our last award is A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. Well, I mean, obviously we are singing for Melody here to have had a larger story perhaps, but I really wish there was more Missy Pyle. I I don't know that I can say it should be about her Mm -hmm. necessarily, but I love that she's there and I love her comment about like, I'm here because I was in the comic. (laughs) So good. (laughs) And it just makes me be like, oh, Missy Pyle, another great actor of the time who I want more of. She was so I love when she turns up in movies. She's always on fire. I would go with Fiona and Wyatt, Parker Posey and Alan Cumming, just because the two of them in this movie are so unhinged, but in like a a totally perfect way for this movie and these performances. They're so funny. They're so ridiculous. Um, I would honestly watch an entire movie about how they got to the the positions that they are at Mega Records and like how they struck up this deal with the U.S. government. I would watch that in a heartbeat. One thousand percent. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm seeing Parker Posey in a play this weekend. I am so excited that I just watched this. To be able to watch that. I'm going to throw out there um, Smells Like Teen Spirit Girl. I think that would be a fun. <laughs> what like because I thought I was like, are they going to follow up on like what happens to her after she's a plot point? But we don't. So like what goes down? Yeah, I mean, you see her like in the lair in the background being one of the test dummies for the headphones, the like cat ear headphones. Oh, uh, yeah. Like it, it, I've seen this movie way too many times. So I obviously <laughs> I'm looking in the background of frames now. Um, but like, yeah, I feel like I appreciate how no matter how small the character is, there was was care and consideration for how they are involved in the story and, and why their presence is important to the story from you know from her to anyone else but man parker posey for life i love that this movie has so many good actors in it she's one of our greats of all time all right that's it for the awards for our listeners if you have any idea for new awards you can email us at movies vs capitalism at gmail.com shannon before we wrap up we love to ask our guests is there a practice that you have in your life where you like to practice anti-capitalism or just, I mean, we've had some of this conversation so far, but how do you 
deal with these values in your own life? Well, I would use the buzzword mindfulness uh, as a psychotherapist, of course. I think it's about being mindful of relationship to capitalism. And, and in my work, I think that's what I'm trying to do is to just try to talk with people and give them the space to examine their relationship and to see themselves outside of that. So I, I would say that when I think about how I'm trying to personally stand in the water and cut the tide a little bit. I would say I'm trying to help people feel less emotionally burdened by capitalism. That's a really good one. So, you know, everyone should go get a degree in psychotherapy and then, you know, teach people about this. That's that's the best way that you could uh, practice these values. It's yeah, true. Really Give beautiful. up a couple of years, read so many boring books and <laughs> it'll be good. Shannon, where can our audience find you and your work? You can find me on Instagram at Shani B Movies. That's where all my fun movie work is. And you can follow my practice at The Happy Bird with a Y, B-Y-R-D. Uh, a lot of fun content to just make you smile there. And otherwise, just online at thehappybird.com. And what are what are some of your podcasts? Uh, so I do a Movie Buffs podcast about action movies, where I talk about all the best action movies, because I love action movies. Um, and I also do something called Diagnosis Movie, where I talk about uh, psychological themed movies and just kind of dissect them with people Ooh. who, just like you guys, bring them to me. Uh, to try to intersect these two things. That's awesome. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Love seeing you. Miss you. Upset that we don't live in the same city anymore, but hopefully I'll see you at Jersey Christmas. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was so great to see you again. It was so great to talk with you guys. And I'm just grateful for what you're doing because there aren't a lot of resources to feel seen and heard. And this is a great one. So thanks. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 2010 Tour de Force, The Social Network. Thanks, everyone. See ya. The sparkling drinks are just dandy.